If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We're going to finish the chapter uh, today, Luke chapter 18, by looking at verses 31 uh, to 43. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. I hope you're turning there. And you can follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for eyes to see today. That we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we would see the things that are true, that your spirit has inspired and inscripturated here in your word. We pray, Father, for eyes to see We pray for hearts that are ready to believe and to obey and to follow wherever it is that the Lord calls us to go. Lord, we pray for the grace that You would keep us from error. Pray that You would keep me from error, Father, that Your Word would be very clearly explained and taught to Your people so that our confidence would be not in the things of man, but in the Word of God. Help us, God, we pray. And we ask, Lord, above all, that Your Spirit would bear fruit in our lives, in our church, to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, today's text is a passage of firsts and lasts. Firsts and lasts. For the first time in Luke's Gospel, we have a detailed account of a blind man who is healed by Jesus. There are other passing references to the blind being healed, but this is the first detailed description of a blind man healed. Also, for the first time in Luke's Gospel, we hear someone identify Jesus as the Son of David, which is a clear messianic title. Who calls Jesus the Son of David? Well, the blind man does. He sees what so many others don't see. It's a passage of firsts. First account of a blind man healed, 
first time Jesus is heralded as the Son of David. At the same time, those firsts are countered by a series of lasts. For the last time in Luke's Gospel, Jesus performs a miracle. There are no more miracles after this. The blind man healed is the last of Jesus' mighty deeds. Also, for the last time, Jesus predicts what will happen to him in Jerusalem. He will be mocked, shamed, killed, but will ultimately rise again. It's his last passion prediction followed by his last miracle. It's a passage of firsts and lasts. Now, this connection of firsts and lasts is more than a neat observation about the text. This connection actually helps us understand the significance of Jesus' mission, of what He's about to do. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem, which means His ministry is drawing to a close. There are no more miracles because the cross is on the horizon. That's what the lasts are communicating. Jerusalem is the end. It's the culmination point, the apex, the pinnacle. But at the same time, what will happen in Jerusalem is not a tragic disaster. Rather, Jerusalem is the place where eyes will be opened to see the full truth about Jesus. That's what the firsts are communicating. Jesus is the Christ, just like the blind man says. He has come with saving power to open the eyes of the blind. And He is the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan to save His people. Far from being the place of Jesus' demise, Jerusalem is the place of His coronation. It's the place where His glory will be seen most brightly. You see, the first and the last are telling us something. Jesus' ministry is drawing to a close. God's sovereign plan is being fulfilled and Jesus' saving power is on display. And that's what I'd like us to focus on this morning. The first and the last of this text lead us to see two truths. God's sovereign plan and Jesus' saving power. Those two truths, God's sovereign plan, Jesus' saving power, Those truths frame this entire text. So what we're going to do is just reflect for a little while on both of those truths so that we can see the significance of Jesus' mission. We're going to start in verses 31 to 34 with the sovereign plan of God. That's the first truth that we ought to reflect upon. The sovereign plan of God. As we noted a moment ago, verse 31 begins Jesus' third and final passion prediction. He's predicted His death many times, but there are three formal predictions, for lack of a better phrase, in Luke's Gospel. Two in chapter 9 and this one in chapter 18. And because Jesus is predicting His death, it can be very easy to think that something is going dreadfully wrong with Jesus' ministry. Death does not seem like the appropriate end for someone like Jesus. His teaching has divine authority. His miracles display the reality of the kingdom. You wouldn't expect someone who says the things that He says and does the things that He does to experience such a shameful death. So whenever Jesus predicts His death, you might think something is going horribly wrong. 
But in reality, the passion predictions like this one are saying just the opposite. Things are not derailing, Jesus is telling us. Rather, God's plan is coming to pass. And this final passion prediction here is a good example of why this is so. Notice the ways that Jesus' prediction emphasizes the sovereign plan of God. First of all, the plan of God is seen in Scripture fulfilled. Listen again to verse 31 and notice how clearly Jesus affirms that God's Word is coming to pass. Verse 31, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So, what is driving Jesus to Jerusalem? Not fate. Not the opposition of the Pharisees. Not the hostility of the scribes. No, what drives Jesus to Jerusalem is the plan of God laid down in the Word of God. It's the Scriptures that are driving Jesus to the cross. In fact, notice the totality of Jesus' prediction. Everything written about the Son of Man in the prophets will be accomplished. Nothing that happens to Jesus happens by accident. Everything is driven by God's Word. All that the prophets predicted is going to come to pass in Jerusalem. I thought about going through all of the Old Testament prophets and reminding you of all the things that the prophets predicted, but we would be here till next Sunday. And Jesus says all of them, all of them, from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Malachi, all of them are going to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Scripture is coming to pass. Jesus is telling us this is the plan of God. But along with that totality, notice also the certainty in Jesus' prediction. Everything Jesus says will be accomplished. You see it? Accomplished. That's a word of certainty. What God foretold through His prophets will, without a doubt, come to pass. So I make this point anytime I preach and teach on Jesus' death, and I'm going to make it again. If you've been at Midtown longer than 12 minutes, you've heard me say this before. Jesus is not a victim. He's not a victim. No one is getting the drop on Jesus. He's not swept along to Jerusalem by the winds of fate or by the mere wickedness of human schemes. Jesus goes to Jerusalem eyes wide open, and He goes with certainty. The certainty of victory, in fact. He knows that God's plan will be accomplished. So when you put those two aspects of verse 31 together, you can see this emphasis on Scripture fulfilled. How do we know this is the plan of God? Because His Word is coming to pass. There's another way that Jesus' Jesus' prediction highlights God's plan. Not only is Scripture fulfilled, but Jesus' suffering is predicted. His suffering is predicted. Listen to the detail that Jesus gives in verses 32 and 33. If you know the passion of the Christ, and I mean the Bible, not the movie, then these verses are a striking preview of what's going to happen. Verse 32, For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging Him, they will kill Him, and on the third day, He will rise." When you compare this prediction with those earlier predictions in chapter 9, you'll notice that these verses are a lot more detailed. Why? What is Jesus doing? 
He's pulling back the curtain more and more. The closer they get to Jerusalem, the more Jesus reveals of Himself. And I don't have this in my notes, but notice the fact that Jesus knows every heinous thing that will happen to Him and still He goes. If you've ever wondered, does Christ really care about me and about His church? Read these verses. He knows they're going to spit on Him and He goes. Every step of the passion is detailed right here. The betrayal and the transfer to Pilate, the sham trial, the mockery, the shameful crown of thorns, the spitting, the beating, and finally, death. Every step, every step of the passion is described in vivid, striking detail. Jesus is no victim. He knows what will happen to Him because this is God's plan that's unfolding. But friends, we also ought to note that Jesus knows His suffering will end in victory. On the third day, He will rise, Jesus says. The resurrection is already in view. The cross is the prelude to glory. Suffering leads to triumph. How can that be possible? How can Jesus know such an unthinkable thought that He will rise from the dead? Because God's sovereign plan is coming to pass. It's being accomplished. Every detail, friends, from the spitting to the rising, every detail has been ordained by God. Still, there's one more indication of God's sovereign plan, and it's a surprising one. Notice the disciples' response, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So how do we know that God's sovereign plan is at work? Because Scripture is fulfilled, because suffering is predicted, and now because illumination is needed. Illumination is needed. The truth of Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be understood through human wisdom. This is God's plan, friends, which means God must provide the illumination. God must open blind eyes so that the glory of redemption is seen in the shame of Calvary. If you're going to see the Gospel, God has to open your eyes to see it. That's what verse 34 is teaching. The point is not that the disciples are cognitively unable to understand the words that Jesus is saying. That's not the point. Rather, the point is that the disciples can't understand how death leads to life. They can't understand how shame and wickedness reveal glory and grace. They can't fit Jesus into their assumptions. They still assume that the Messiah is going to conquer with an army, not through a cross. To say it another way, the disciples see that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't yet see that He's going to be a crucified Christ. That part is hidden from them. Hidden from them by whom? Well, you could say Satan, or you could say God. It's definitely God, because if it's Satan, that's terrifying. Hidden from them by God. Why? Because in God's sovereign wisdom, He's going to reveal that to them following the resurrection. But the point is, they need God's work. They need God to open their eyes. They need God to give them understanding. In fact, look again at verse 34, where Luke says they understood none of these things. You see that there? That same verb, understand, is used in chapter 24 when Jesus appears to His disciples 
following His resurrection. Do you remember that scene? The disciples are in the upper room. They're meeting together. They're troubled by what has happened to Jesus, which you and I would be troubled too. They don't understand. But then suddenly, Jesus appears in their midst and something remarkable happens. Luke says Jesus opened their minds to understand the Word of God. It's the same verb. So what do the disciples need? They need illumination from Christ through His Holy Spirit. And friends, that too speaks to God's sovereign plan. This is an important takeaway from verse 34. It's one that we ought to affirm gladly and joyfully. The Gospel belongs to God, not us. It did not originate in the human mind. No human wisdom could conceive of death giving life or shame bringing glory. No human mind could conceive that the judge would die in order to save the guilty. The Gospel belongs to God. And that means God must give the insight to understand Christ's death and resurrection. So when you put all these pieces together, Scripture fulfilled, suffering predicted, illumination needed, when we put all of that together, we have this stunning reality before us in these few verses. Jesus is going to die soon. And when He does, it will be because God's sovereign plan has come to pass. There's no fate. There's no chance. Jesus is no victim. This is God's work from beginning to end. And that, brothers and sisters, should be a good reminder to us that the salvation of God's people does not rest on chance or favorable circumstances or good fortune. The salvation of God's people rests on the unshakable wisdom and sovereign plan of the Almighty God. Maybe you've never thought about Jesus' death in this way, but it ought to be an encouragement to our souls. Think of it this way. If God was sovereign over Jesus' death, the most heinous act in the history of the world, if God was sovereign over Jesus' death, then surely He is sovereign over the life of Midtown Baptist Church. Then surely He's sovereign over my life and your life. If God did not leave His own Son to suffer under fate or chance, then how much more will He not leave you and I in the midst of this world? And listen, I'm not trying to turn the Gospel into something that's just about you and me. The Gospel is about the glory of God revealed in the crucified and risen Christ. And yet, the union between Christ and His people is so deep that the Gospel does absolutely reveal the Father's heart for His children. And we're on stable ground when we make this claim, friends. No less than the Apostle Paul makes the same connection. Perhaps the most astoundingly precious verse in all of the New Testament. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The salvation of God's people, that's you and me, doesn't rest on chance. It rests on the sovereign plan of God. God's plan is being accomplished at the cross. And since we are saved by that old rugged cross, our lives run according to God's sovereign plan as well. There's no chance. There's only a good and wise Heavenly Father. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is a very comforting thought.
This final passion prediction reveals to us the sovereign plan of God. Of course, the disciples don't see the sovereign plan of God at this moment, do they? They are blind to the glory of the cross. But blindness, as we're about to learn, is no problem for Jesus. The miracle that follows in verses 35 to 43 pictures the saving power of Christ. This is the second truth that we ought to reflect upon. The saving power of Christ. The miracle involves a beggar from Jericho, which was on the way to Jerusalem. And the contrast between the beggar and the disciples is quite purposeful. Notice the description in verse 35 and following. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Again, the contrast is purposeful. The disciples can physically see, but they are in some sense still blind to Jesus, at least to His cross. The beggar in Jericho, however, is physically blind. He has to ask what the commotion is. He doesn't even know what's going on. But for all of his blindness, the beggar sees better than the disciples. This is clear in the blind man's confession. Notice his cry, verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd says it's Jesus of Nazareth, and the blind man says, no, it's Jesus the Son of David. He sees better than the other people. Indeed, verse 39 is so rich. There are so many connections in verse 39, like these little threads that are tying chapter 18 together in this tapestry of truth. It's a remarkable verse. Unlike the rich young ruler, the blind man has no wealth to trust in. He's completely dependent on what Jesus can provide. And like the tax collector from that earlier parable, the blind man cries for mercy. He doesn't plead his merit, he just cries for mercy. In doing so, the blind man is like what? He's like a child with simple faith in Jesus. He has nothing to offer. All he can do is wholeheartedly depend upon the Lord. What's more, the blind man is persistent in his faith, just like the parable of the widow that started the chapter. Look at what happens in verse 39. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Even when the world tries to keep him back from trusting in Christ, the blind man perseveres. He persists. He keeps trusting that Jesus will show him mercy. So verse 39 is this remarkable picture of genuine faith. Genuine faith, not merit, only mercy. Not a divided heart, just humble, childlike dependence on the Lord. Not easily deterred, but persistent in trusting that Jesus will hear me. It's genuine faith. But by far, the most remarkable part of verse 39 is the blind man's title, his confession for Jesus. The blind man cries out to Jesus, Son of David. Like we said at the outset, the blind man is the only person in Luke's Gospel to use this messianic title. He's the only person. An unclean spirit uses it, but this is the only person who cries out. And make no mistake, friends, this is a messianic title. The Old Testament was very clear 
that the establishment of God's kingdom and the salvation of God's people would come through the king in David's line. Even think back to the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Why does Luke take so much time to narrate that Jesus was born in Bethlehem when His parents are from Galilee? Because Bethlehem is the king's city. It's David's city. And that link with Bethlehem helps us to understand who Jesus is. He's not just a son born to a virgin. As astonishing as that is, He's the king. He's the son of David in the king's line. So when the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, he is confessing something that no one else in Luke's Gospel has seen yet. He's confessing that Jesus is the king over God's kingdom. He's the Christ, the Messiah. Amazingly, the blind man sees. But as amazing as his confession is, it's followed by something even more powerful. Jesus' command. Again, this is the last miracle in Luke's Gospel. And like all of Jesus' miracles, it's telling us something about the Lord. Listen again to the miracle, beginning in verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And let's stop here for just a moment and emphasize again the blind man's faith in Jesus. Because we know the story, it's very easy to breeze past this moment and not pay it much attention, but this is a staggering request. The, the man is a beggar, and he finally got Jesus' attention, but instead of asking for money, he asks for something even more astounding. He asks for a miracle. Let me see, he says. The nature of his request reveals the state of his heart. It reveals the depth of his faith. He asks not for money, but for a miracle. Then comes the command, verse 42. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately the man recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So with only a command, Jesus restores the blind man's sight. He heals him. And the result is widespread praise to God. The blind man praises God, but so does the crowd. God's power has been revealed in and through Jesus. So I want to pause here for just a minute and think about this connection between the blind man's confession, Jesus the Son of David, and Jesus' command, recover your sight. I want to think about the connection between the confession and the command. And I want to think about this by going backwards in Luke's Gospel a little bit. Do you remember when Jesus preached His very first sermon in Luke chapter 4? Do you remember that? His first sermon. He had just come back from the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan. And He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and He preaches His first sermon. Do you remember the passage that Jesus preached from in that first sermon? Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, which said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. So what would the Messiah do when He showed up? What would, what would the Christ do when He arrived on the scene? He would preach the good news of the Kingdom of God and He would confirm that preaching by doing what? Opening the eyes of the blind. Luke 4. 
Now, connect the confession and the command here in Luke 18. The command to heal in verse 42 affirms the confession in verse 38. The blind man declares that Jesus is Messiah and Jesus, with incredible power, opens the man's eyes in order to say, listen to this man. He sees. He sees the truth. He sees who I am. Listen to this man. Friends, I'll contend this is the whole purpose of the first and the last. Those last miracle, which is unique in Luke, occurs in a setting where Jesus is publicly declared as the Son of David for the first time. Last miracle. First confession. Why the last and the first? Because the miracle affirms that the confession is true. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of David. And a blind man sees it. A blind man sees it. So what does this have to do with you and with me? It's a wonderful moment in Luke's Gospel. It reveals Jesus' power, not to mention His mercy. But what, what does it have to do with us? What should be our response? Good question. And the answer is found in Jesus' commendation of the blind man. Confession, command, now commendation. You already heard it, verse 42. Your faith has made you well. The blind man is both healed and saved. How did it happen? Through faith alone in Christ alone. Don't let anyone ever tell you that salvation by faith alone was made up by the apostles after Jesus. That's malarkey. It comes from Jesus. His own life and ministry. The man is healed and saved. How? Through faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus commends the man for his genuine faith. But then notice what follows from that man's faith. This is the part of the passage that we would probably overlook. Notice what happens, verse 43. And immediately the man recovered his sight and followed Jesus. Friends, that's discipleship language. That verb for following is used all through Luke's Gospel almost always in context of discipleship. They left everything and followed Him. Chapter 5, verse 11. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Chapter 9, verse 23. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and come follow Me. Chapter 18, verse 22. Do you hear the connection? The blind man doesn't merely see. He follows. Discipleship follows faith. Discipleship flows from faith. The blind man's faith was not confined to a single moment. It was expressed through all of his life. He doesn't merely see. He follows. He submits. He obeys. He follows the Lord. And by commending the blind man, Jesus is issuing this call of discipleship to all of us who hear His Word, to all of us who hear His Gospel. The call is plain. Come, follow Me. And the way you follow Jesus is exactly what we see here by faith. Discipleship at its core is trusting that Jesus alone can bring you into the presence of God. It is trusting that Jesus' Word is both right and good and that submitting your life to His Word is the way to find life 
It's trusting that the only way to see the truth is through faith in Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save you, then this is the call of God's Word to you today. The Bible is very clear that sin blinds us from seeing the truth about God and the truth about ourselves and the truth about life in this world. That's one of the devastating aspects of sin. We think that we see, but all the while we're blind in ignorance and opposition to God. But as we see here in Luke chapter 18, Jesus has the saving power to open blind eyes and give sight to those who were otherwise lost. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a Christian, the Gospel compels you this morning to call out for mercy through faith in Christ. Turn from your sin. And trust that only Christ can make you whole and right with God. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to see everything. All you need to see is that you are a sinner, lost and hopeless on your own. And that Christ is merciful to those who trust Him. The Gospel is compelling you, friend. Won't you hear the testimony of the blind man this morning and believe that Christ is powerful to save? If you are a Christian today, then the Gospel compels you to this same end. To continued faith in Christ that is demonstrated in following the Lord. The blind man's eyes were open and the first thing he did was submit his life to following the Lord Jesus. Discipleship follows from faith. Submission flows out of trust. Where is God's Word calling you to renew discipleship today? God's Word is always demanding our response, friends. Where is God's Word calling you to renew discipleship today? Maybe it's relationships in the home. Maybe it's the way you go about your work. Maybe it's a worrisome mindset that struggles to give each day's troubles to the Lord. Maybe it's love for the world that is leading you further and further into patterns of sin. All of those are discipleship issues, brothers and sisters. And every Lord's Day is a reminder that discipleship ought to be ongoing. The blind man saw and then he followed. Faith expressed in discipleship and submission. If God has opened your eyes to see some area of life this morning, how do you plan to respond? And who are you going to tell so that they can help you respond? Where do you need to grow in following Christ by faith? We're going to pray in just a moment and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Don't let this moment pass, friends. Learn from the blind man who saw clearly and ask God to give you eyes to see where your own discipleship ought to grow in submission to the Lord. I told Laura this week that this is one of my favorite passages in Luke's Gospel. I love the Gospels, and this is one of my favorite passages, firsts and lasts. Such a wonderful text. The sovereign plan of God requires that Christ suffer and die in Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry is coming to, his, to its end but His suffering is not a sign of defeat. It's a display of His saving power. And that's what this last miracle is about. The healing of the blind man is a preview of what Christ does through the preaching of His Word. He opens blind eyes to see.
and to trust in the Savior. And with unspeakable grace, He calls sinners, come and follow Me. So may God give us grace, friends, to both see and to follow, all by faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We need Your grace to see the truth of who You are and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need grace, Lord, to follow You by faith. We pray, Father, even now for the work of the Holy Spirit that He would work conviction in our lives. That we would be, we would be humbled, Father, to recognize that the blind man didn't just see, he saw and then he followed. He submitted his life to You Help us, God, to not merely say that we trust in Christ, but to then demonstrate day by day that we're following Him by faith, submitting our lives to Him. We pray for the Holy Spirit's convicting work in our own hearts even now as we prepare to come to Your table. Lead us, Father, to repentance. Because we know, God, that repentance is a grace that You give to Your people. Help us, Father, even now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.